This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just discuss one serial killer. I discuss several serial killers and something they have in common. Today I'm starting the series on families that kill together. This first episode will be about Joseph Callinger and his son Michael. The dates that the murders occurred was 1974 through 1975. There are three verified deaths. Joseph Callinger was 39 years old when he was caught and Michael was 13. They are from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where as we all know, it is always sunny. My main references are The Door-to-Door Killer by Thomas Downs, The Shoemaker by Flora Retta Schreiber, and a long-ass article from New York Magazine. The Shoemaker is the most popular of the books and is the most commonly cited reference. I happened upon The Door-to-Door Killer when I was researching to see if there were other books about Joseph Callinger. So I happened upon that one. I was lucky enough to get a, a copy of it. The Shoemaker is from 1983, Door-to-Door Killer from 1984. And then after I read those books and was doing some more digging online, I found that New York Magazine article, which is from 1975. Those are my three main sources. I'll post them on the website as I always do. So to jump on into it, Joseph Callinger was born in 1936. He was abandoned as an infant and was adopted at 18 months old by an Austrian couple that owned their own shoe repair shop. Their names were Anna and Stephen Callinger. Joseph alleged that they were abusive, and we will get more into that later. He left school at the age of 16 since he had full employment at the shoe shop. About that same time, he married his first wife, Hilda. They had two kids, which he named after his adoptive parents, Stephen and Anna. They got divorced, and Hilda got custody of the girl. Joe maintained custody of Stephen. Later, he remarried Elizabeth Baumgard. She went by Betty. They had five kids together. Joseph Jr., Mary Jo, Michael, James, and Bonnie Sue. Now, Bonnie Sue was quite younger than all the others. The other kids were all about the same age. His dad, Stephen, died in 1965. Joe did wind up taking over the shoe repair business. And Anna lived across the street. So he maintained a relationship with the adoptive mother all the way up until the end. It is important to note that they lived in a bad neighborhood. And their kids were no angels. So it was they were known to be troublemakers. They had trouble in school. They had trouble with the law. In 1972, Joey, Mary Jo, and Michael said that their dad beat them, burned them, and abused them. And they had a neighbor kid as a witness. So he was officially charged. They sent him for mental testing. Now, let's talk about his mental testing throughout his life at this point. In 1952, he was having difficulties in school, and apparently he had subnormal intelligence. Five years later, in 1957, he was hospitalized for 11 days for headaches. And they realized he's going through a divorce. It's probably all just stress-related from the divorce. In 1959, he was sent to a hospital because he went to go to a doctor's appointment and said he blacked out and was just wandering around and the cops found him and took him to this hospital and then they finally figured out who he was um, but he had a, a period of amnesia when they did the mental testing during the trial some of the doctors said he was not fit to stand trial that he had schizophrenic tendencies and should be hospitalized other doctors said he was schizophrenic but he was okay to stand trial one of them said that 
everyone in the family needed counseling and that Joe had, quote, paranoid attitudes, schizoid involvement, emotional reactions didn't relate to the situation, including giggling uncontrollably. But he was competent to stand trial and didn't need hospitalized. Another doctor said the test results showed brain damage as a result of constant exposure to chemicals used in shoe repair. Some of the doctors said he was just faking it. So he was ruled fit to stand trial and he was found guilty. But then the kids recanted and they said they lied and made it up because they were just mad at daddy. And he, of course, publicly, he forgave them and said, you know, kids will be kids. You know, two years later, November 22nd, 1974, in Lindenwald, New Jersey, Joan Cardi, age 21, was home with her two daughters that were one and two years old. A boy came to the door selling tie clasps and asked if her husband was home. She wanted to buy some. She's like, no, my husband's not home. We're not interested. Go away. I mean, she was polite. He came back a little bit later. And this time he asked for like change for a 10 or something. She's like, what the hell? Get the fuck away. So she shoes him away. Again, she was probably way more polite than that. Well, then a man shows up at the door. And she figures, well, maybe he's looking for that boy. She starts to open the door and he just pushes his way in. He brought a brown bag with his own knife in it. He tied her to the bed. Her wrists and ankles were tied with boot laces. He had spread her legs and tied them apart. She was naked. She was gagged with her husband's undershorts. He untied her ankles, removed the gag, ordered her to fillet him, which in the New York Times, New York Magazine article, it says, quote, perverted sex act. It didn't specifically say, but in everything else that I saw, it specifically said that he ordered her to fillet him. Then afterwards, he retied her feet to the bureau, gagged her, left the room, and him and the kid left the house. So at this point, we know that there's a boy who, you know, is a teenage, and he comes to the door, and then the man busts his way in. While he's in there with the woman, the boy is taking things from the house. Then, not even just a couple weeks later, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So we go from Lindenwald, New Jersey, to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Helen Bogan had left for a bit and came home. Turns out they were inside the house. He grabs her from the inside, threatens her with a knife. She was not going to take any shit and asked him why he didn't have a job. <laughs> so, so I like that she, was, she wasn't just going to let him do his thing. She was going to give him a little bit of shit for it. Well, he takes her upstairs tied her up in her son's room. The woman was going to have a bridge party. So this is just, this blows my mind. So she's tied up. Her first guest comes, Ethel Fisher Cohen. She comes in and just keep in mind, these poor women are just expecting to come have a nice little game of, of cards and ha maybe have a little afternoon drink. I don't know. But they were just going to have a nice little afternoon together. Instead, she gets pulled inside the house, taken upstairs. Her wrists are bound, her head's covered. She doesn't know what the hell's going on. Well, then, right after that, the door rings again, and it is Thelma Sudan. So that poor woman gets dragged into the house. He shows her Helen and Ethel, so that way she understands this is a serious situation. Then he ties her wrists and feet together, puts her in a closet with her face covered. The poor woman can hardly breathe. Then another woman comes, Anna Pearl Frankston. He pulls her in the house, takes her upstairs in the hallway, bound her hands and ankles, put tape over her eyes and mouth, and then put her in the bathroom. Actually, at this point, he moves Ethel into another place. So he didn't want them to be anywhere very close together because he didn't want them to, you know, obviously conspire and try to help each other. So there was a lot of juggling and 
it kind of blows my mind that they were able to take down four women, it, though it probably did help that there were two of them and, you know, there were knives and guns that they had. So what wound up happening is they took $20,000 worth of jewelry and money and ran off. Apparently, they had broken two of the window panes on the side porch to reach the side door locks, and that's the way that they got into the house because she had locked it. So we go from New Jersey to Pennsylvania to Baltimore, Maryland. Just a few days later, December 10th, 1974, Hamela Jasky, age 28, was home with her four-month-old daughter. Now she lives in a really nice neighborhood, so she never really locked her doors. She didn't think there was much of a threat. So she's laying her kid down for a nap. Doorbell rang. She kind of peeked out the window, didn't really see anyone. But then she hears people coming up the stairs. So she sees a man with a gun and a boy with a knife. They take her into the bedroom and had her undress. They had brought handcuffs for her wrists and ankles and tape for her eyes. Joseph held a gun to her head and forced her to fillet him. Then he took her to the bathroom, lighter down on the floor. He cut a vacuum cord, tied the handcuffs to the sink drain with it. Then they put a, he put a sock in her mouth, taped it in place... And they heard a knock at the door. They waited. There was nothing else. Unfortunately, it would have been kind of nice if it would have been somebody that could have helped her. At any rate, at that point, they took $6,000 worth of stuff and left. Then they go back to New Jersey on January 6th in Dumont. 39-year-old Mary Rudolph had just come home with her two-and-a-half-year-old son. The door was the type where when it shuts, it automatically locks. Well, she didn't realize, but it didn't shut all the way. So it was still kind of, you know, not quite enough in the door jam. So it's still open, unfortunately. So she goes straight to the bathroom, left her son in the living room to watch TV. She comes out of the bathroom and, and unpleasant surprise, a man and a teenage boy are standing in her house. They tape her eyes. The man had the gun. They took the, her little son to his bedroom and then they put Mary in the master bedroom. He took the mattress off the bed, cut lamp cords had her take off her clothes and lie on the bed, and then he tied her hands and feet to the springs. Again, he forced Felicio. Then, in an interesting escalation, he told his son to come in and told the woman, you let him do whatever he wants to, to you. And the boy starts to act like he's going to, and uh, apparently he kind of makes, you know, he starts to go towards her and... You know, I don't think he really did much of anything before he just realized he wasn't going to be able to do it. So then they just gave up. Joe taped her mouth shut and they left. I don't have how much money he stole from her. This time they stayed in New Jersey. A few days later on January 8th in Leonia, 26-year-old Dee Dee Wiseman was visiting her mom's place to do some laundry and help take care of her grandma Blanche Smith, who was 90, and was living with her mom. Dee Dee's son, Robert, who was four years old, was with them as well. A man comes onto the porch when she goes to see what's going on. He pushes his way in, points a gun at her, ties her hands and feet, tapes her mouth, takes her and the kid upstairs, has them both take off their clothes. Then they check the grandma to make sure she really is an invalid and won't get in the way. And then the bell rang. It is the sister, Randy, who's 21 years old. She's surprised at the door. They have her disrobe, her hands and feet are bound, her mouth and eyes are taped, and she's taken upstairs into a different room. Then, the bell rings again. No, it was not another bridge party. It was the mother, the other sister, and the sister's boyfriend who had been visiting the nursing home. They were coming home. So, Edwina is the mother of Retta, Randy, and Dee Dee, and Frank Jeffrey Welby is Retta's boyfriend. 
They're greeted at the door by an armed man and a boy. All three of them are bound with blind cords that they had cut from the blinds right there at the house. They let them keep their clothes on, so that was nice of them. So they were all bound. Now, at this point, they have two women and a child upstairs and then three more people in the living room. The doorbell rings again. It is friend of the family, Maria Fashing, who is also a nurse, and she was just politely looking in and seeing how the grandma was doing and checking on the family because she's been family friends with them for years. She went to school with Retta and Randy and knew Frank. So Maria was a lot like Helen Bogan, where she was not going to put up with shit either. She goes in, well, she's pulled in, and she resists, she tries to resist, and then finally she submits. They put an overcoat over Frank Jeffrey's head, takes him to the basement. Joseph lays him down on the floor. He pulls down the guy's pants and lifts up his shirt so his manhood is revealed. And he puts a knife against his genitals and threatens him. Then Joseph brings Maria downstairs and winds up stabbing her. He doesn't ask her to take off her clothes. He doesn't make her take off her clothes. But he winds up stabbing her. As he's stabbing her, his son yells that someone's gotten loose. So they run away. The cops come, and it turns out that the man and the boy had thrown all the rings, bracelets, watches, and the gun and knife away, which the cops all found. They were just kind of tossing it as they ran. They were like dro- they were dropping them as they ran because they realized it could be evidence at that point. The cops found a discarded shirt. A witness saw Joseph washing his hands in a puddle and try to wash off the shirt, but he winds up just dropping the shirt and running off without it. At this point, you and I know that it was Joseph Callinger and his son. The cops had no idea. It was that shirt that ended up doing in Joseph Callinger. So they found on the shirt there was a laundry tag that had K-A-L, and they did all the research, and they found that dry cleaner that had worked on that shirt. The dry cleaner gave them the last name K-A-L-I-N-G-E-R. Well, they searched the databases, can't find anything on a calendar with one L. So someone decides to call other local law enforcement agencies. And phonetically, they said calendar because they're on the phone. They're not typing things up. So when they say calendar... This one cop is like, oh, we know Callinger. It's, and it comes out, it's K-A-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. The cleaners didn't have enough room to have both L's, so they took one out. So thankfully, they were able to hear phonetically and, and make some headway. The reason the cops recognize the name is because in July of 1974, so before... The robbery started. Joseph Callinger had reported his son missing, his son Joey. Then August 9th, Joey's body was found at a demolition site. It was in the basement of an old building being demolished. He was covered with rubble and partially crushed, so they were unable to determine the cause of death. The interesting thing, and the re- part of the reason the cops remembered, is because in May, Joseph had taken out an insurance policy, a $45,000 life insurance policy on Joey. So when he tried to cash in the claim, it was denied. Because obviously that's suspicious that a few months before your son dies, you take out a policy. Now, technically, he did also take one out on his son, Michael, but they still wouldn't pay it out because it's still 
obviously looks weird. Well, the cops were convinced that he had something to do with it, but they couldn't find any kind of evidence to prove that he had done it. So Joseph wound up filing charges against the police department saying they're harassing him and he was a big pain in the ass. So that's why they remembered him. They remembered Callinger's the one that probably killed his own son and then he gave us a lot of shit because we were trying to call him out on it. So once the cops narrowed it down to Joseph Callinger, they sent photos to police departments and witnesses, victims ID Joe. Now it was harder to figure out which son was actually his accomplice because Michael and James were about the same age and they looked similar. So it was hard to tell which one, which son he had with him, or maybe he was alternating. They checked the kid, the school records and apparently Michael was always out of school on the days that the killings occurred and James was in school. James and Michael were both arrested, but James was let go. When the cops searched the house, they found stolen items, including 54 items from Lindenwald and from Dumont. They tried to talk to Michael and Michael would not talk. So Michael has actually since changed his name. I have not been able to find anything where Michael actually said what happened or why he did it or anything like that. Joseph wound up pleading insane. He was found sane and guilty, and he got life. Michael was sent to reform school. Joseph died of an epileptic, epileptic seizure on March 26, 1996, at age 59. Since he pled insane, he did have more testing and speak to more doctors. So one doctor felt that he had hysteria with conversion reaction, which involves a process of releasing through physical symptoms, repressed psychic events, ideas, memories, feelings, and impulses. Another doctor felt that he had disassociative hysteria, which involves alterations in the patient's state of consciousness or in his identity to produce such symptoms as the amnesia which Joe suffered in Hazleton. So we know his uh, case of amnesia that I mentioned earlier. But it looks like they both agree that he's hysterical, that there's some kind of hysteria in there. Um, Joseph claimed that he saw God and that God charged him to help humanity through shoes. He also said that he saw someone named Charlie that was a disembodied head that would tell him to do things. He claimed he was a butterfly once during the trial. He's had so many doctors look at him, and they all agree he does have definite mental issues. But the difficult thing is to determine, even if someone has mental issues, is if they knew right or wrong at the time that they were committing the acts. So I think sometimes what happens is when people plead insanity and the jury sees they did these terrible things, even if they hear doctors saying this person does have valid mental problems that impair their judgment, whether they are valid, sometimes the jury just wants to see justice. They don't like the thought of, well, we could send them away and try to help get them either see if they can get cured or maybe not cured. That might not be the right word is um, to get assistance, to be able to get on the right medications or the right therapy that can help them live a productive, balanced life where they're not harming anyone or themselves. So there's the option of, okay, let's maybe try to get them some help or you can send them to prison. And, you know, in some cases there's the death penalty. So, It is more gratifying to think that someone is in prison serving the time that they deserve to serve. So I think sometimes when juries find them guilty, when they've had an insane defense, I think some of it's emotional 
that they need to have the catharsis of knowing they're being put in a place that they can suffer. Whereas if they get help, then it's not the same. They're not going to have the same treatment there. They might actually be treated a little better, I guess. So in this case, I don't want to say whether that's right or wrong what they did. I think that Joseph was a disturbed individual. So I think I think it probably would have been best if he probably would have just put in a hospital because he wound up just a whole bunch of suicide attempts and then he wound up getting put in a mental facility anyway. And Michael, hopefully, he was able to move on and have somewhat of a normal life. I have not told you yet about victim number three. I mentioned the very beginning there were three victims. So I've only mentioned Maria Fashing, and then I mentioned that he was accused of Joey, so that's not a definite yet. Now, the reason I've only discussed one is because at this trial for the robberies, he was only charged with Maria Fashing because that was the only one they could prove that he had killed. So what's interesting is while he is in prison, Flora Schreiber, who you may recognize as the woman who wrote Sybil, got an interest in his case. So she started to interview him. She got permission, and I forget what insane amount of time she spent with him. But she interviewed him and got all kinds of information, including him saying he had killed a young boy in 1974 before the robberies. He claims that he had completely forgotten about it until just then. He admits that he killed this boy. The boy's name was Jose Colazo. He was only like nine or ten. The boy had was found in mid-1974 in an ab- abandoned factory. At that point, there were no clues or anything t- to lead them to know what had happened to the boy. So he admits he kills killed Jose, and he also admitted he did kill his son, Joey. So at that point, when it came out that he admits to killing Joey and this other boy, they, they charge him with murder. So he has another trial where he is convicted of the murders of Jose Colazo and his son, Joey. So I think it's interesting that they were able to do that, that I really, really wanted to find more information on the actual Jose Colazo case to see what there was about it that pinned him to that. There must have been something that he knew about it that proved that he did it. But to me, it's like just saying, oh, I killed this boy. That doesn't seem like enough to actually convict him. And I can't find anything about specific information that tied him to it. But again, I'm having faith that people did their due diligence and he actually did kill the boy. And by that same token, I don't know exactly what the proof was that he had that he actually did kill his son, Joey. He probably did. At any rate, they apparently found enough evidence to charge him guilty of killing a total of three people. Now, his son, Michael, was apparently involved with both of those killings as well. But I don't believe that they had charged Michael with any of those because they couldn't find proof that he was involved. So I decided to do this in two episodes. There were a lot of discrepancies that I found, things that were puzzling, and just lots of information. So I figured what I would do is the first episode would be the things that I know that I had two or three or more sources that all verified the information. So I felt safe that it was as accurate as we can have. So everything that I've said so far, I have verified in different places. Now, the next episode will be the things that I found that were discrepancies or as the things that are agreed upon across the board. 
So there will be better discussion to be had after I have that information out there. In the next episode, I will be getting a little bit more into what was different in the sources about the robberies, because there are some interesting differences. I'll get more into his visions of Charlie and God and Michael's role in it and what Joseph said Michael, how he said Michael acted and everything. And I'll get more into the supposed abuse by Joseph's adoptive parents I appreciate you tuning in. I hope that you'll uh, tune in for the next episode as well. After that episode, I will be done with the Callinger family, and I will be discussing Gordon Stewart Northcott and his nephew Sanford in the Wineville Chicken Coop murders. So that one's uh, an intriguing case as well. You can get more information at murderlabmedia.com, including the RSS feed, or you can find us on Google Play and iTunes. Thank you for entering the lab. <laughs>